We are going to be happy to answer questions from the audience today. And so this is a time for you to express your questions. Oh, okay, we have one. Of course, we know we're being told that the protest is over and there can no longer be a Protestant church. But we believe that the Reformation not only has not ended, but it is now finally set to be complete. The reforming of reshaping of God's character in his people. In Daniel 8, it talks about to 2300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. So I was wanted to ask, how do you see this concept that the Reformation is finally to be complete as being seen in the cleansing of the sanctuary since Christ is there cleaning out the sins that his people continue to bring in? Does that question make sense? Yeah, let me tackle that because I had this discussion this morning with Gerard Domsticht. Um, so we were talking about this very issue and uh, over breakfast. So let's, I'll, I'll just share with you kind of what we were talking about with that. Um, I think that it's, it's clear from the spirit of prophecy and also from Scripture that as there is a cleansing of the sanctuary that is taking place in heaven, there will be a, a transforming uh, out, outpouring of the Holy Spirit on God's people here at, on earth and that there will be a cleansing of God's people here. We're living in the antitypical day of atonement. What does that mean? It means that during that time in ancient history, you know, the, the type in ancient history, that type was the, um, the, the time, it was one day, of course, but it was the time when people were extremely focused on their right uh, setting before God. Um, everything that was superfluous was removed, and they uh, lived their lives humbly. Now, as someone who has spent years and years living in Israel, let me share with you something about this too. Yom Kippur in Israel still today, when Jews, when Jews still celebrate Yom Kippur. It was yesterday? Yeah, it was yesterday. Or is it today? Was yesterday? Was yesterday. Okay. Anyway, when, when people are still going through Yom Kippur in Israel, it doesn't matter if they are religious. Well, it does. But those who have grown up in religious homes and may not even believe anymore, there is still a solemnity that goes about on that day that is very, very serious. I had a very close friend, Giselle and I, um, the Dotans. They were both professors at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Uh, they both were very well-known archaeologists, and we were, um, we were in their home often when we lived in Israel. And Professor Dotan, Moshe Dotan, her husband, um, would become very, very agitated and, and very, very anxious during Yom Kippur because of his state before the Lord. I think that there's something about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and I think there's also something about our sanctification process that needs to happen during these days that is very, very significant as we move forward to the time of the end and as we move through this time process. And I think the Holy Spirit will pour out His, His ability through the merits of Christ 
to accomplish that during the same time. Only through his power. Only through course. his power, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, hello, good evening, happy Sabbath, and um, I really appreciate the, um, the lectures today. I was unable to come last night because um, I thought it was at a different time. But anyways, um, I made it, and so uh, one of the things that um, I really appreciated was the fact that um, religion or theology was combined with an element of art, which oftentimes the two, I think, has more controversy and enmity than religion and science. Um, but anyways, um, so thinking about everything that I've heard and I kind of like received, I was thinking practically how can I like allow this to impact my life and, and really affect everything, you know? And so I came to the conclusion, and so the question is going to be, what do you think about my conclusion drawn? The, 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 the conclusion I came up with is that to really kind of embrace the art as a means to kind of um, share this message, and um, the question is, what do you think about that, A? And another question is, um, if the art was so pivotal, or so, um, not pivotal, but dang, if the usage of art, no, um, hold on. If Martin Luther used art, right, if Martin Luther used art and um, the Reformation, right, um, should we, right, as Seventh-day Adventists, should we also use art, should we also be embracing art, um, and yeah, and so, that, so those are the questions. So let me tell you something. The history of art in the Protestant Reformation has had a sad history, actually. A lot of people blamed the Protestants because of the iconoclastic movement that came about right around that time by Zwilling and what's his name? Karlstadt. Karlstadt. They took everything that was in the church that had Mary and to be a sinful representation of the old church, the old religion. And so they went a little bit too far in destroying everything. And believe it or not, as we've seen, and even some people have mentioned here, the Jewish position and how Luther didn't maybe take appropriate positions in that. You have to remember these guys were making it on the go. They, they had studied and things were happening. So Luther at first with art wasn't sure what to do with it either. He wasn't sure if he should go with his colleagues, but then later he, he realizes, no, that's fanatical. Destroying art like that is, is fanaticism. And he kind of backs up and, and, and embraces art. So you will always have like the gentleman here next to me said, um, when there's a reform, some, you, you, we, Kate, to make this relevant, we've just seen statues being destroyed just recently. Anytime there's a, a, a spirit of reform, art kind of gets either not, um, or, or financial trouble, art gets uh, not um, supported or destroyed because it stands for something. If you believe that art can stand for something, then 
And then Luther also got this position, became aware that it is necessary to use art because it's a form of communication that is immediately understood. It is powerful. And they knew that people looking at the booklet I gave you would immediately get it. They would immediately get the reformer's message, much more than studying all the theology. So yes, and yes, and yes. <laughs> and yes, and yes. I want to chip in on this as well. Um, art's very dear to my heart. Do you know, as Adventists, there's, there's one aspect of the creation story I think that we have undervalued. Uh, when God created man in Genesis 1, what was the statement he said? Let us man in our own image. And he says it twice. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I know this much about Hebrew. It's small vocabulary meant it was hard to emphasise things. So if you wanted to emphasise something, what did you do? Repeat. You repeated it. So when God says twice, three times actually, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. What was God doing when he made that statement? I'm going to make people who are like me. Wasn't he being the most creative that we have a record of? And then he says, they're going to be like me. So, by nature, we must be creative. And if we crimp or limit or attack creativity, we're actually attacking one of the prime characteristics of God that he placed in us, and it's the image that he wants to reflect. I read a wonderful book about Christian creativity, and he said we most reflect God, not when we're preaching or praying or studying the Bible, but actually when we're being creative, because we reflect the Creator's image in doing so. Now, you might quibble with the waiting there, but I like the sense that he wants to restore to living faith creativity as an essential reflection of the character of God. Can I add one thing? And this is something that um, has been written about many times before. But um, I just recently finished a uh, commentary on the book of Exodus. And what's very interesting, when you first uh, deal with the sanctuary uh, being built, which is an expression of great architect, architecture and art, the first time God ever pours out his Holy Spirit on anyone mentioned in the Bible specifically. It's on two artists that are responsible for creating the tabernacle sanctuary and its furnishings. So God doesn't, um, God values art very highly. He used the image of the sanctuary, an image of the sanctuary all through history to illustrate the plan of salvation. And that is the complete plan of salvation that we have been given as a church to still proclaim today as Jesus is in the, is in the heavenly sanctuary. So art is powerful, and you only have to look at what the last, what is it, 10 years now? It's the 10th anniversary of the iPhone, right? What, 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 are, we, what are we watching all the time? What are we consumed with all the time? Often to our detriment because it can be used by both sides, right? 
media, media, media. Yes, we need to use media for the church. God created these ways, these art forms. We need to use them, but of course, it will be used by others as well, as we saw in the Reformation and Counter-Reformation. My question is for Dr. Renault and for Dr. Hazel, right here. Um, Dr. Renault, when you were telling us about the, the first book, and the part about the recipe for chaos, where if we're all going to be able to interpret the Bible ourselves, we're liable to get a lot of different interpretations. And um, it was supposed to be as the result of um, the Reformation that that would happen. And then Dr. Hazel, at the end, I understood you to say that it wasn't as a result of the Reformation, that it was, um, you know, the bankruptcy and stuff came from the result of historical critical scholarship. So I'm just trying to kind of put those two, two together. If, um, if a lot of people hadn't gone the way of historical critical scholarship, could the Reformation have not resulted in, in the chaos that was described in the book? If, if they had followed, you know, certain principles of biblical interpretation? Or do you think it's valid that, that it just had to be that way because of the Protestant Reformation? I'll have a stab at that first since I was mentioned first. Um, there's no doubt about the accuracy of the, the issues that historical criticism have have brought to, to an understanding of the Bible. I mean, they, they've undermined, they've dismantled, you know, it's seriously problematic. Uh, to be honest, Protestantism was tearing itself apart a long time before that, and Protestantism has helped spin off, uh, unintentionally, has helped spin off movements like, um, you know, the Enlightenment, the French philosophers. Uh, it, it created opportunities for people to rethink, to question and to doubt. Uh, quite honestly, that's the case. Uh, I, I'm not happy with those consequences. I'm not endorsing them. It's just what happens when God loves us so much that he gives us freedom of choice. Even though he knows our sinful nature will frequently distort it. The only alternative to that is a dictatorship where we're not allowed to do it. And so while the Reformation has unleashed forces that we now see have been destructive, that, that threaten the very foundations of Protestantism, of true faith, at the same time, we've got to seize... It's a bit like the media, you know? The media is overwhelmingly problematic and damaging. Should we abandon it and never touch it? No, we should use its power to speak truthfully into the world. <clears throat> I think one of the reasons for so many Protestant ideas is because sometimes we cling to ideas that we had before. Uh, let me explain. There's a, there's a great chasm between Martin Luther's view of the Eucharist and Ulrich Zwingli's view. Why? I think there's a good explanation. When Luther was first ordained as a priest, he had it drummed into him 
you are handling the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And he almost had a nervous breakdown. He couldn't bear the thought that he was handling the body and blood of Jesus Christ. But that was such a traumatic thing for him that even though he threw off most of much of Romanism, he couldn't part with the idea, even though he did away with transubstantiation, he couldn't part with the idea that this was the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. And, and a lot of people, you know, they'll read the Bible, but as Justo Gonzalez says, when we read the just shall live by faith, we read it through Luther's eyes. You know, he says, you know, rather than reading the Bible fresh, we read it through the, the, the eyes of the theologians we're familiar with. So I think that's part of the problem. Uh, let me go out on a limb now. When I was teaching Bible doctrines a hundred years ago, Uh, actually, it was when I was teaching denominational history about a hundred years ago. <laughs> um, one of the students said, "Why did God let the great the great disappointment happen?" And I suggested that maybe it was to shake us out of our preconceptions and to be able to look at the scripture anew. Now, they didn't do that completely. Thus, we have anti-Trinitarians among our early members, among our early leaders, because these people had been raised in the Christian Connection Church that denied the Trinity. And so, you know, they went with what they thought. They, they, so, so I'm thinking, you know, that conditioning has got a lot to do with it, and our desires have a lot to do with it. Um, <clears throat> I think, you know, history is very complex and there's a lot of different factors at, at play. Um, you, have, you have, you know, a period of Protestantism and we see this also in, as, we, as we look at um, the seven churches of Revelation, as we go through the seven churches, we, we come to a period of history where where Protestantism has already taken place, but where there's a lot of internal conflict, and we see this prophetically as well. I mean, why would, why, would, why would Melanchthon at his death say, oh, finally I can escape the rage of the theologians? You know, a poor guy. I mean, he was, he was, he was just, you know, overcome with this, with this battle between Catholicism and Protestantism. And then within Protestantism, there was this as well. And I think part of that is the human nature and again, you know, truth and understanding is something we have a tremendous perspective today because we can look back and we're standing on the shoulders of many others that have come before us. But we have to understand that this is a progressive thing that where truth doesn't contradict what happened in the past or what happens in the past, but it is an unfolding of truth. It is an unfolding of, of, of something that continues to, to blossom as we're rooted in Scripture. So I think, um, you know, the same question could be asked um, of the early, uh, of the Jews at the time of Christ. They had it all. They had the sanctuary message. They had the plan of salvation in front of their very eyes all of these years, and yet their own traditions came in the way 
of them truly seeing with fresh eyes, as, as, as Dennis had said. So I think in a, in a large part, we too have to humble ourselves and allow Scripture to really impact what we are saying and what we are believing. One of the reasons that Melanchthon had such trouble was because he began to grow in his spiritual understanding beyond where Martin Luther had been. And in some of those things, he was right. But the Orthodox Lutherans were angry with him because that's not what Brother Martin said. I want to thank you, first of all, for having this panel and uh, for having us all here talking about the Reformation because this is a super important topic. And so thank all of you. Uh, I thank all of you for coming and answering our questions. Um, and I saw a theme developing in your responses to the last question that kind of leads well into mine, talking about looking at the Bible with fresh eyes and not letting um, the way theologians in the past have viewed the Bible, distorting that. So this is my question. Um, it pertains to the relationship between uh, the doctrine of sola scriptura and Ellen White. Uh, this might sound kind of direct, but it, I'm just being direct because I think this is a really important issue and I would like to understand it better. Um, my question about this is twofold. Um, firstly, I want to ask about the inspiration of Ellen White. Um, most Adventists maintain that Mrs. White enjoyed the same quality of inspiration as the authors of the Bible, um, yet we also say that her writings are not scripture and they are not canonical. So first of all, i just like clarification as to what makes how that distinction makes a difference as to how we approach her writings. And lastly, flowing from the previous thought, um, if we maintain that Mrs. White enjoyed the same quality of inspiration as the biblical authors and that she is therefore infallible, how can we claim to search the scriptures with new eyes or objectively without her influence? Because if she is an infallible prophet and she can't be wrong on issues of doctrine, it seems to me that we are somewhat kind of bound to her interpretation of scripture because uh, we don't want to put God against God or God's word against God's word, his inspiration against his inspiration. Um, but then that seems to me that we can't rely on Scripture alone um, because then we're forced to try and harmonize the two if we see contradictions or we have to chastise those in the church if they stray from her interpretation of a teaching, even if their interpretation is just coming from the Bible. Um, so in short, can Ellen White be wrong in her interpretation of Scripture? And if she can't be, then what is the difference between her writings and scripture? And how does treating her writings as infallible, yet denying them to be scripture, how does it not negate sola scriptura? That was a very big thought. <laughs> but <laughs> And you'd like an answer in just a couple of minutes. Yeah, all right. Yeah. You could, if you could answer me in like 10 words or less, that'd be great. No worries, mate, as we say in Australia. Let me uh, take a shot at that. We find in the Bible that there were both canonical and non-canonical prophets. Uh, prophets who were genuine prophets but wrote nothing, left nothing for us. So we know already in the Old Testament that uh, inspiration is not limited to canonical prophets. We see that also in the New Testament when the gift of prophecy is handed out. The Holy Spirit gives the gift of prophecy, and in 1 Corinthians 14, we're encouraged to seek that gift. Most of the gifts we're not asked to seek, but we wait for the Holy Spirit to bestow them. But uh, 
especially, he says, uh, seek prophecy. Uh, prophecy is often misunderstood. Uh, prophecy is primarily not foretelling the future, but forthtelling, speaking for God. And uh, those who did the foretelling were often called seers. They could see into the future. But most prophets were not seers. Most prophets were simply prophets who could uh, speak for God. And uh, many non-canonical prophets have spoken for God, both in the Old Testament period as well as in the New. Uh, we have uh, statements in Scripture prophesying that uh, the gift of prophecy would be manifest in the last days, Revelation 12:17, And it's... Uh, companion texts we've known as key texts for a long time. And, and so we understand that uh, you don't have to be a, a prophetic or a canonical prophet in order to have God speak through you. And uh, I think all of us need to be prophets uh, in that broader sense that the New Testament uses as proclamation of truth. Pro proclaiming Jesus Christ to the world, proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Uh, that's prophecy. Uh, but to answer your question a little more directly now, I believe that Ellen White was a genuine prophet, but a non-canonical prophet. If she was a genuine prophet, then what she said was true, because one of the tests of prophecy in Scripture was what they say uh, must match up with the previous prophets. First Corinthians chapter 14 says that uh, uh, prophets must be in harmony with prophets. And uh, we know that uh, uh, what they say must, must come true. And so we have tests, in other words, that have been applied. And I think Ellen White has met those tests and we can have confidence in her, but that doesn't make it scripture. So uh, I, I see her as a non-canonical prophet who has truth to offer that kind of supplements Scripture, but it's not Scripture. It's not canonical. Scripture is a closed canon. We don't add books to, uh, to Scripture. And so uh, I think we can have confidence in what Ellen White has shared with us, and it becomes kind of a, uh, an inspired commentary on Scripture, but uh, ultimately it's Scripture that determines truth, and Ellen White is tested by Scripture, not vice versa. In one of her final sermons, Ellen White held up the Bible and said that this is what we need to focus on. She was all of her life pointing to the Bible, not away from the Bible. I think we often confuse two concepts. Uh, the non-canonical prophets, we, we kind of ask questions about the quality of their inspiration. The inspiration of God isn't doled out in first, second and third class doses. It's, it's the inspiration of God. What differs is not the quality of the inspiration, but the role that that prophet is called to by God. And those roles differ. And Ellen White was very clear on her role. She had a prophetic ministry to this church. It was very clear. It was a leading voice. But when it came to the Bible, 
she was very definite that she was the lesser light pointing to the greater light. So yes, read her, but read her so that we go back to the Word. Just one more thing. When you're looking at these things, again, going back to historical things, do you remember when Jesus died, the disciples were, were extremely confused. They were probably worse than the great disappointment. I mean, they probably were shattered. It was bad. But at that time, they were praying, and, and Christ revealed himself to them. And then later, they received the gifts of speaking in tongues. There are times in history where there's... That's why I started my lecture with there's a time for everything, because there's a time in history where there's an increase in desire for understanding things. We should have that desire all the time. But because of something that has just happened, God comes to rescue. He never leaves us. He never leaves us completely out in the dark. He has always historically again and again sent prophets at the right time when everybody's thinking, what do we do now? Then there's something there to rescue his people. So I praise the Lord. And I'm glad you asked that question because I think, I didn't know this, but I took a class with... Um, in the seminary by Professor Fagel, the church is open to the gifts of prophecy still. We're open to that. These, there are people always sending letters of some kind of vision that they've received to the BRI, and they sincerely look at them, and, and, and they have to always compare to the Bible and, and make sure, you know, well, what do we do with this? So, it's always the Bible. The Bible is the measuring rod. And then if it, it's the timing with Ellen White was necessary to help the church as well. It still is. It, it still is necessary for the church. That's right. We are entering the judgment hour of the tornadoes, the hurricanes. That's right. And the church, if you forgive me, is in apostasy against the Bible and the spirit of prophecy in many ways. Take the medical medical evangelist. God says he wants, and around every city, no drug uh, to educate the people without the use of drugs. Instead, the education of the church is just not The Holy Spirit is showing us in the judgments we see that it's coming soon. And if we go back to the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, we will go back to the Bible. I, um... I spent 50 years, or 40 of it anyway, in the publishing work. And my question is coming from that context. Um, the book that Goldstein wrote, 1844, made simple. As a young boy, I was told by, young, by pastors when I was young, you really can't understand 1844. And so they stayed away from it. But it's been such a blessing to see that just not only you know, well discussed, but well verified from the scriptures and even on our, our television networks and things. My question is this. As a publishing man, many times I've been in front of, of pastors of other denomination and influential people who've said uh, that, you know, we're to blame for the great disappointment of 1844. You know, you guys are a cult. And I have always defended myself with saying, hey, look, we didn't start that. You guys did. It started in the Baptist church, the Methodist church, 
And I said, and, and I found when I come back and dump it in their pocket, it was, what, at least 20 years uh, after before we became a denomination, even though Ellen White and, and Miller were involved in it. What I'd like to hear from, from you guys is, am I off base stating it that way, or is there some legitimacy in it? Are, are you, let me restate the question, are, we, are you off base in saying that the great disappointment happened before the Seventh-day Adventist Church came into existence? No, no, it, it's, 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 it's words I realize. I agree that God called the Seventh-day Adventist Church to proclaim this message. I don't have a problem with that. But I think we short-circuit ourselves when we take the, that it's our message. It's a biblical message. The great, the disappointment come out of Daniel. And so it's, it's in the scriptures. And, um, and I don't think our, when I was just recently here in Ringo, we had a, a church whole week where we had a booth at the, at the county fair. And uh, on Sabbath, I just decided to go volunteer instead of come to church. And I had a lot of pastors come by. And I try to stimulate conversation and I bring this up. And I said, you guys blame us. Because this community, I've worked here for what, 20 years as a call porter? This community, a lot of it still believes that we're a cult. And so by breaking that down, I show them that they started it. And by going back and showing that they had it, we studied it out and found out that it was scriptural we have something to share with them. Uh, am I messing you up? Seventh-day Adventism was a reform movement. It wasn't a new movement in the sense that we were making up new stuff. It was restoring uh, apostolic teaching that's already found in the Bible. So I think what you're saying is true. It was already there, but... It wasn't being picked up on. Uh, even the reformers uh, didn't pick up on many of the of the biblical doctrines. They came back slowly, and after 1844, uh, I remind my students from time to time that uh, God didn't call Ellen White as a Seventh-day Adventist. She had been kicked out of the Methodist Church. But God was looking for somebody who would, uh, who would help uh, restore the, the biblical message to the world. And this young girl, 17 years old, was the only one apparently uh, willing to respond to the call. And the Seventh-day Adventist church came out of that years later, um, almost 20 years later. So... Uh, I would have to agree with you that uh, Seventh-day Adventism is uh, simply uh, the message that God was trying to bring to the world, and when uh, enough people got together that could agree on that message, they uh, eventually formed a church. I think it points out something else that's really interesting. And that is, we recognise that our founding thinkers were half right. The Great Disappointment came about because 
they had the right idea and applied it in the wrong way. Can we admit that we made a mistake? And then, having made the mistake, we went back to the Word and we investigated it. And I guess this comes back to something I said in my talk. Confidence in the Word, certainty in the Word, and humility in our understanding of it. Because we still haven't got everything right, you know? We're human, we're fallible. That's why we need revelation. That's why the Word of God is so precious, because it, it comes from outside of our thinking and tells us things we would never figure out on our own. And, and uh, I think that's a perfect example of a good approach to the Bible. They seized on something, they went with it with all their heart, with all their conviction, they found out they were only half right, so what did they do? Well, some people packed up and went home, but other people said, let's correct the mistake, let's go back to the Word. And that should be our approach today. I think we ought to be proud of it, that we had the humility to say, we got it wrong, let's go back to the Word. Okay. Um, so I have a question for, I don't know how to say your name, Reynolds? That's close enough. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so um, I saw a slide that you um, put up about oh, the creed, I think... Um, one of the Adventists back in the day wrote about it. And so I have here, I know you, um, we don't believe in a creed because the, the, eight, the 28 fundamental beliefs could change as they have been edited. But why do we hold then the, tw the 28 beliefs accountable for members and they can be baptized members unless they agree to those beliefs? Is that then considered a creed without being called a creed because it could change? Or what do we call it then? Yes. <laughs> Anything else? <laughs> uh, I mean, you, you're pointing out the delicate dance that we take as Adventists. We do need to be clear about what we believe. We, we do need to be able to say, this is what we stand for. And at the same time as Adventists, we're terribly aware of where other denominations have gone off the rails by setting their beliefs in concrete and then crucifying anyone who differs. We recognise that... It, I, I put the quote up. We recognise that we may see things clearer. We may find better words to say what we believe. We are a movement. We're not fixed because we're led by the Holy Spirit. Um, so to say to somebody... This is our best expression of faith. Do you agree? I think is a perfectly legitimate process. Uh, but we also need to keep in tension the fact that we are humans trying to understand the divine will, and that is progressive. Okay. I may have missed this um, in, in your presentation, but I didn't hear you mention anything about the ECT, e Evangelicals and Catholics Together. I don't know just how long it has been since this was uh, established, but fairly recently anyway. And I also understand that the World Council of Churches has just recently met. <clears throat> 
And I'm wondering if perchance there has been a lot going on that we haven't been made aware of that, that perhaps at this 500th anniversary coming up, the 31st of this next month, we might see something rather significant or startling that will be um, announced to us. I think there has been a lot going on behind the scenes that we have no idea about, and I just wonder what your opinion or, or your scholarly information might be on this. Thank you. Um, the document you're referring to, Evangelicals and Catholics Together, I think was signed in the early 90s, if I'm not mistaken, 92 or something like that. Um, and certainly that was a step forward. I think we're seeing what I was trying to present today was that in the last year or two, we've been seeing um, monumental, unprecedented moves that we haven't seen, as I said, in 1,200, 900 years as, 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 as ecumenism is taking a whole new shape and a whole new form. I don't remember ever hearing in the news that a sitting United States president in his first overseas trip has as his primary goal to unite the three major world religions most Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. I've never heard that in my life before. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe others have heard that before, but I haven't. Um, so we're seeing things that are out in the open. You know, after, after the, let's go back to um, Ronald Reagan and, uh, and Pope John Paul II and the fall of communism. That came out after it happened. We're seeing things now out in the open announced before it happens and as missions and trips and things are taking place. Um, so I, I, I think you're right. I think there's a lot more happening behind the scenes that we may not be aware of, but we're becoming increasingly aware, at least in my view of, of, of what I've been watching over the years, we're, we become increasingly aware of movements and, and um, changes taking place that are unprecedented in, in our history, as far as, as far as I can see. So I don't know what's gonna happen this next month. Um, it hasn't been announced what will happen. We only anticipate and wonder with what has been taking place. There's been, I think, some setbacks, as I mentioned. The ecumenical meeting between the Eastern Orthodox churches in Crete this last summer in June did not have all members of, of, of those various churches present there, so that was a setback. Um, there have been other setbacks that I think Dr. Pettibone uh, mentioned in terms of the uh, 1999 document, the Joint Declaration, where the Catholic Church has kind of withdrawn a little bit, and you know, there's this back and forth, and yet there's this movement forward. And one thing that I've learned is, I think in history that we've learned, the Catholic Church has one thing on its on its side, time. It's moving steadily towards a goal, but it has time. At least they think they have all the time in the world. Maybe they don't. But, um, you know, they, they, they're, they're working. They're working. There's no question about it. And, and we're seeing an unprecedented movement in the last two years towards this anniversary 
that I think I think can have some some implications for us in the future. Definitely, the document evangelicals and Catholics together had as its primary purpose uniting for purpose of a political agenda. And as Dr. Hazel mentioned earlier, the Catholic Church very much would like the United States and other countries to put into law Catholic dogma. And, and, and so uh, the religious right actually was activated by a couple of Catholic politicians who decided to use Protestants as their as their agents, their pawns, uh, to accomplish getting some of the Catholic agenda on the law books of the United States. I'm, I'm fascinated as an Australian, sorry to, as an Australian coming here and to see the religious right be so active and aggressive and to see most Christians be terribly alarmed by the secular left when prophecy tells us it's a religious right. They're the ones we need to be scared of. Um, you know, the lamb-like beast, according to Adventist interpretation, is who? United States apostate Protestantism, you know, and, and yet, dare I say it, I see a lot of Adventists who are lining up with the religious right out of fear of the loony left. Well, the loony left is the loony left, but... Let's not be so scared of driving off the edge of one cliff that we drive off the edge of the other one. Amen. Just one more thing. I don't know how many of you knew this. I didn't, so I'm revealing my ignorance. But there's so many pieces of the puzzle coming together right now. But there was one piece of puzzle that really came, that hit me the other time when we, we go to Israel a lot due to uh, archaeology. So a lot is happening there. And there, I didn't know this, but a Muslim once, in a ta he was a taxi driver, he said, we believe Jesus is coming back too. <laughs> I was like, okay. I said, so, you know, what, what, will, that, what will happen? He said, well, the, oh, the way it's going to happen is Jesus, of course, he, he's not going to be the son of God, but he's the, the no, not the Messiah either, the prophet, Jesus is going to come, and he will come and open the, the gates of Jerusalem that have been closed for thousands of years, it's, or hundreds of years, it's called the Golden Gate, and when that gate is open, he will judge people, and the righteous will go up, and the other, and the non-righteous will go down, and I said, well, and I'm thinking false Christ all along, and now I'm thinking, well, what if we don't believe that this person is Jesus. He says, then they should be persecuted and killed. And I was like, that would be me. <laughs> so there's a lot happening. There is the dispensationalists that are actually joining with the Jews in making furniture to rebuild the temple. And there are Jews constantly protesting in the Temple Mount. I see this every summer. And then there's the Muslims thinking Jesus is coming and the Messiah is still to come to the Jews. Man, if the false Christ comes, it's going to bring it all together. 
and there's going to be Muslims believing it and Jews believing it and Christians and Catholics, and then all of a sudden we're going to be this small little group saying, we have a problem with that. It's, it's definitely a flood that we're going to have to be ready to withstand. I'd like to thank all of you for this, and somehow I wish the spark that you got going this weekend could fan into a fire. I don't know how his name was not mentioned at all this weekend, but Francis Schaeffer has been called by many the Martin Luther of the 20th century. And somehow if we're, we're talking about an anniversary, let me tell you, that man foresaw abortions uh, by the millions. He fo foresaw euthanasia, and we've got states now that let older people pull their own court. He, he saw what was happening. And uh, I just, in, in the art world and in our church, forgive me, I'm an artist. At 13, I had scholarships at, at, at uh, music schools in Syracuse and Ithaca College. But all my professors were homosexual. my three pianist teacher. I went from one and I said, Dad, is this what music does to you? I gotta quit. And he, he <laughs> forgive me, he graduated number one from Loma Linda, three in the nation as a physician. No, he, he told me how it happened. But I want to say that as a church, art can be used by God or the devil. Music can be used to bring us right into the sanctuary where the back of my hair will stand up. Or it can be a lizard lounge, discotheque music where my pelvis wants to move. I'm exaggeratory, but that's where Elvis pelvis came along. But I want to say that we need to realize that we're in a great controversy for good or evil, that Jesus is the head of one side and Lucifer is the head of the other. And I thought today for the first time, this is a new expression for me, and I, I, I voracious reader like you guys are. The Bible says that Jesus is the same what? The Catholic Church, by its own doctrine, of infallibility has made the same stand on her doctrines. She's the same as she was yesterday, today, and forever. And I could give you this list in the years they came. Mrs. White says the, the red liquor in the uh, uh, whore of Babylon should be uh, articulated, the heirs of the Catholicism, Catholicism in the years they've come. You gave us nine or ten. There's a good 20 of them. She'll never change from those because they're in ex-cathedral, they're in the magisterium, and she couldn't and keep herself. So, folks, we're, we're in, in a crisis in our church, in our country, and in the world. We need a new Pentecost. We I... need to be saved again and again and again and, and be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Because we're going in, as you mentioned, Dr. Hazel, I think it's, is it your father or uncle that was at the seminary? Francis' father. <clears throat> One of my favorite professors. 
it's hard to get an A from your dad in the book of Daniel. But we snuck one out. But God bless the anointing that's transgenerational. We need a new revival and reformation in our church as we never have before. So help us, God. Let me get on that wave that you just started. I want to say something. Music, art, like we all know, can be used for the good and the bad, but they are the art, uh, they are the language of spirit and emotion. And they, they can enhance the intellect, but the opposite can happen too. If you're just looking at emotion and art and visual, and you're not feeding your mind with the word of God, you're, uh, you're, you're going to have the rug pulled from under you because emotionally you will be ready, but intellectually you will not ho know how to answer to the questions that we're going to be facing. Okay, we need to bring this to a close real soon. Is there anyone right now who's waiting to speak? One more, okay. Um, I have Dr. Hazel for um, archaeology, and um, I was just asking, like, Specifically as a young person, like how can like the young people get interested in these topics? Because sadly, many of us as young people don't like have a understanding of it or a interest in it. So how can we as like young people get involved? Since like we are the future of the church, so how like how can we pass the baton to the young people? Is that a question for me or for everybody? Probably everybody. Um, well, since you mentioned my name, I'll start. Uh, we're having this conference here at Southern Adventist University because we want the young people involved. We want them to catch a vision of why we're here and where we're going. Amen. We need that today. And um, as a father, as a parent, as a teacher, as a professor here, um, I don't believe the future is, is, is in your hands. I believe the church now is in your hands. And we have lost too many generations of young people um, in the last 20, 30 years that have not understood why we're here, that have wrestled. When I was in college, I watched my friends um, for various reasons not fully understand and grasp what all of this was about. And um, so every single generation, we talked about revival and reformation, every single generation needs to have that living, new, born-again experience with Jesus Christ. And when you are directed by the Word of God and when you immerse yourself in the Word of God and are not distracted by all the distractions that we have around us, and we have many of them, and we have to deal with those as adults as well, God will place in your hearts a vision of His purpose for you in your life. And He will set you on a course to do that, whatever that vision is and wherever that vision will lead. So, um, I had a young person this morning, after the morning services were finished, say, Dr. Hazel, why can't we have this at chapel, at convocation? 
said, well, that's not up for me. That's not up to me. I don't make those arrangements. I'm, I'm an officer with ATS, so we made it here. But we're having it on this campus because we need to, we need to point all of us, regardless of whatever age we are, we need to be pointed back to scriptures and the foundations. That is what drove the Reformation, and that's what's going to drive the Reformation that needs to continue today. Amen. As a historian, I'm very much aware that every generation is convinced that the generation below them has lost the plot. <laughs> but I want to say that my contact with your generation as a university professor in Australia and here, I am really encouraged. I'm not saying that we have no problem. We need to work as hard as we can with your generation. But I am deeply, deeply encouraged by the level of commitment that I see in the young people today at our universities. They're paying thousands and thousands of dollars when they could go, in Australia, they could go to a state university for free. Why are they doing that? Because they have a commitment. A commitment to this church, to its special role at the end of time, to its beliefs, to its mission. I just want to affirm, young people, we often bash you up. There may be some things we need to bash you up for. <laughs> I don't know. Generally speaking, bashing up doesn't work terribly well. Um, but I really want to affirm your generation because I think I see so much energy and commitment and passion for the things that move my heart. And I'm really grateful. We need to bring this to a conclusion. Let's stand for the benediction. Dear Lord, we thank you for the message that we've heard today. We pray that each one of us will be led by the Holy Spirit to do our part in getting the world ready for your coming. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.